God, you are so good, and we thank you that the tomb was empty. We thank you that the darkness of the grave has been conquered by Jesus Christ, the bright morning star. And Lord, we wait for you. Like the Jews of old waited for the coming of the Messiah, Lord, our, our hearts, our souls just groan with a desire to be united to our King and our Savior and our Lord. Lord, we do ask that you would come and come soon. And yet we also think about all those people who are still far from you. And we know that that's why you wait, Lord. Uh, you wait because your plan is to redeem even more. And we pray that you would do that work. We pray that you would use our church for that work. And we also are eager for you to tarry and, and to wait because, Lord, we have more growing to do. We have more maturing to do. Um, we know that Christ is coming and we want to be ready for your return. And so I pray that you would prepare our hearts for that, that you would make us mature, that we would love you, that we would be found faithful on the day that you do return. And Lord, I ask that as we look at your word this morning, man, God, that you would that you would just humble us, that you would prepare us to receive the truth of your word, that our hearts would not be hard or resistant to that. And I ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, I would love for you to open your Bible with me to Genesis 47, and I kind of have a sermon for you in three parts, which I don't usually say that, but that's probably typical of how I teach anyway, but I'm just going to give you the heads up. Part one, I hope to give you some encouragement. Part two, I hope to give you some biblical theology. And then part three, I hope to press you and challenge you and stretch you. So that is what is coming your way. We're going to read the entire chapter of Genesis 48. And I was reflecting as I was preparing this week, man, in a couple of weeks, we'll, we will have read the entire book of Genesis together at church over the last however long it's been, which is pretty, pretty rad. Um, I guess maybe there were a few verses here and there that I skipped over because they had names that I couldn't pronounce. But, you know, for the most part. But um, we're going to read the entire chapter at the beginning here because I've got some different pieces that require the whole chapter to kind of tie together. So let's read Genesis 48 together. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. <clears throat> so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. 
When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel, that's Jacob, were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father Jacob refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So our chapter begins with Joseph visiting his father Jacob, who is ill and close to death. And the picture that unfolds for us in verses 1 through 7 is really kind of a formal adoption process. Jacob, the father of Joseph, adopts two of Joseph's sons, his oldest two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, into the 12 tribes of Israel. So that going forward, when the 12 tribes of Israel are listed in the Bible in places like Numbers and Joshua, we don't find the name of Joseph, even though he's one of the 12 sons of Israel. Instead, we find that Manasseh and Ephraim become these two half-tribes that replace Joseph. And after the adoption, then, we get Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, which sets the stage for chapter 49, where Jacob is going to speak a, some kind of prophecy over each one of his sons. But in that chapter, we're going to find Joseph included in the list of sons. And so, as a precursor to that, we have Manasseh and Ephraim's blessing and prophecy here at their adoption. There's even some indication, I think, in verse 5 that uh, 
Joseph's or Jacob's intention here is that Ephraim and Manasseh would have prominence in his family even over his two firstborn, Reuben and Simeon. But I really want to call your attention to verses 3 and 4 where Jacob says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now in saying this, I think that Jacob expresses here some wonderful confidence in God, doesn't he? And if you were with us last week, then you might be thinking, whoa, hold on a second, Grady, because last week you said that Jacob, when he stood in front of Pharaoh and didn't profess his confidence in God, but instead said his days were short and evil, that uh, he was kind of not doing what he should do. Aren't you contradicting, Grady, what you said last week? Well, when Jacob came into Egypt in chapter 47, he was 130 years old. And that chapter at the end tells us that when he died, he was 147 years old. Which means that when we get to this place in the text in chapter 48... Jacob has been living for 17 years in the land of Egypt. And I think during those 17 years, things have changed. He's had some time to reflect and his perspective has shifted a bit. It's my opinion that after many years living in Egypt in Goshen, with the famine being over, the famine that threatened his family, and the pain of his favored wife, Rachel, who died, but that pain is now fading into the past. With his sons restored to him, or his son, I should say, Joseph, restored to him, his family reunited, his descendants multiplying, and some honor being bestowed upon this patriarch by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, through his son Joseph, I think Jacob has now got to this place where after 17 years of reflection, he now sees God's favor laid over his life. And what he sees is beautiful, isn't it? Look at verse 15. He says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Here is a man who, in his final moments, has clarity to see that God has been present with him all throughout his life. You know the old saying probably, hindsight is twenty twenty. You know what that means, I assume? That when you look into the future of your life, your vision is cloudy, it's unclear. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know how the details of the future are going to work out. But hindsight, when you look backwards, you have this 2020 vision, right? That's perfect vision. You can see, after time has passed, how the events have transpired. You can see how it all fits together, how it works. I think in some ways, Vanessa was even kind of reflecting on that, and so was Tiana, right? Like, I had this job that I didn't think I would ever use again. And now, look, look how it's being used in my ability to serve at Hope Women's Center. 
Reflecting back on your life gives you perspective to see clearly, doesn't it? Well, I want to give you a new saying to go along with hindsight is 2020. And here's my saying. Biblical sight is 2020. Biblical sight is 2020. What I mean is that Jacob never had any reason to doubt God in the first place. God had declared something to this man. God had made a promise to him. And so he should have known all along exactly how it would turn out. That's what he's reflecting on, I think, in verses 3 and 4, where he remembers what God said to him all those years ago in the land of Canaan at Luz. And then in verses 15 and 16, he then rejoices that this has been true all along. And he now sees it. Now, the reason why this matters for us, I think, is because we're often tempted to forget, aren't we? We look at our lives in their current condition. We see the stress of our finances in the place that they're in currently. We see the challenges of parenting and raising children. We walk through a serious illness We come up against the feelings of loneliness that sometimes haunt the human soul. We go through hard seasons of marriage. We look at the world around us that has gone totally bonkers in the way that it thinks about just about everything. Whatever the difficulties may be, and they come in wave after wave after wave, we look at them, and then we peer into the unknown of the future, and we wonder how in the world are all of these things going to work out? for good. How can these circumstances that I'm currently in possibly make a turn for good at some point? I mean, I remember some dark days like that in the early years of planting Maricopa Springs, just on my face before God in prayer, like, how in the world? God, are you going to bring some good out of this? And what we should do in dark days like that when we don't yet have the perspective of being in the future and looking back to see how the particulars work out, what we should do is we should have the 2020 vision of biblical sight. If we lack the 2020 vision of hindsight, then we can still find courage to press on by thinking about what Scripture teaches us? The answer, I think, is actually quite simple, isn't it? We look to God's Word in those times where we don't have hindsight, and we trust what Scripture tells us about what the future holds. Biblical sight is twenty twenty, which is to say that when we see our lives rightly through the truth of God's Word, then we see clearly. We see correctly. We see with hope, we see with optimism. We see, even into the future, the hope of God's love overlaid through all the circumstances of our lives. And we know that all will be well. Because that's what Scripture teaches. Now, I'm not saying that we can know for certain, through biblical sight, how all the particulars of any given struggle will play out. I'm not suggesting to you that the difficulty won't be there. It's actually possible that the future 
is way worse than your current circumstances, that things will go really, really bad. I don't deny that. What I'm saying is that we can be certain that even as we walk through those difficult circumstances, God will be with us to shepherd us, like Jacob says, to guide us, because he's promised to never leave us and never forsake us. I'm saying that we can be confident that God's tender love is for us and with us, that nothing can separate us from the love that he has for us, no matter how difficult the future might be. I'm saying that because the Bible tells us we can know for sure that God's plans and God's purposes for us are good even in the midst of the difficulty because God has promised that he will take all things and work them for the good of those who love him. I'm claiming with confidence that you can be absolutely certain that at the end you will stand and conquer Because that's the promise that Christ has made to those who trust him. That's biblical sight that's 2020, not merely in the past, but in the future that is yet unknown. I'm calling us to remember passages like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, that give us this kind of biblical foresight. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Jacob had no reason to ever doubt God or ever feel bitterness or despair because God had already told him exactly how it was all going to play out in the end. And that, that's true for you. That same truth applies in the hard circumstances of your life. God's word gives us biblical insight to see through the dark, to know where it's all headed, and then to continue to walk confidently side by side with our Creator, our God, our Savior, who's assured us that He loves us, that He cares for us, that He's with us. And so I know for certain that at the end, you and I can say, just like Jacob, God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. He has redeemed me from all evil. We don't even have to wait to the end to say that, do we? You can rejoice and say that even today. Even now, as you anticipate an unknown future, you can declare that truth because God's word promises it and it's true. Now let me shift to the part of my message that's a little more theological and I'm going to I need to do this to kind of set the stage for where I'm going to end my sermon this morning. And it's going to require that we drill down just a little bit more into verses 3 and 4. And uh, when I get here, as is typical, I'll have some slides for you because it will help. But in these verses, in verses 3 and 4, Jacob is revisiting this promise that God made to him at Luz all those years ago. That was back in Genesis chapter 28. Another word for that location is Bethel. 
And we're reminded of the promise that God made that Jacob recalls that God is going to cause this man to become a great multitude and his descendants will possess the land of Canaan forever. Now that promise that was made to Jacob was really just a restatement of the promise that God had made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. And this promise that came first to Abraham and then passed down to Isaac and Jacob is a promise that really sets the stage for the entire rest of the Bible. But maybe not in the way that you would sort of naturally expect, okay? Because when we get to the New Testament, we come to find out that this promise, in its ultimate sense, has nothing to do with children or property, This promise that God made to Abraham that passes on to Jacob has nothing to do with a nation. Yes, God will actually give Jacob a multitude of descendants and he will give to those descendants the land that he promised to Abraham. That is absolutely true. Those things happen just as God promises. But all of that work is ultimately, we are told when we get to the New Testament, a picture of a much, much greater work that God is doing. See, the promise that Jacob referenced in these verses, it actually includes you. Did you know that? Let me try and lay it out for you. Here's the first slide. Galatians 3.16. It's over here now. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one And to your offspring, Abraham, who is Christ. This verse tells us that ultimately the promise that God made to Abraham was not at all about the children of Abraham. It was primarily, particularly about one child of Abraham. The promises made to Abraham were most importantly about one descendant of that man who is the Christ. Then we have Romans chapter 9, verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Well, that's a real mind bender, isn't it? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What this means is that you can ethnically be a Jew and not belong to Israel. You can share the blood and DNA of Abraham but not be a child of Abraham in a spiritual sense. Let's look at it from another angle and then we'll circle back. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one inwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So in the Old Testament, the sign that you were a Jew was circumcision. You belonged to Israel, and the proof was you came from a family with circumcision. But here the Bible tells us that it's not the circumcision of the flesh that makes one belong to God. A true child of Israel is a person who has had their heart circumcised by the Spirit of God. So a true child of Abraham is a person who has been given a new heart by the Spirit of God. Back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
So who are the true children of Abraham? Who are the children of this promise? Remember, we already saw that Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. That's Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now we see that everyone who by faith trusts in Jesus belongs to the family of Abraham. And now the kicker, let's tie it all together. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. Jesus came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he became the right to be called children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus, who is a Jew, comes to his own people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, as their Messiah to save them, and they reject him. But everyone who does receive Jesus by faith and places their trust in him, Jesus makes them a child of God, true children of Abraham, not by ethnicity, not by flesh, but by the will of God, by the Spirit of God. I hope that this is making sense to you. And what I want you to see, friends, is that Jacob did indeed trust God's promise to him and his promise to his grandfather Abraham. And God made good on that promise to Jacob by turning him into a great people, the nation of Israel. That's true. But Jacob had no idea just how incredible this promise actually was. That from his descendants, God would raise up a Savior, very God himself, not merely a man, but God in the flesh. And through that promised seed of Abraham, God would give a kingdom to children of Jacob from every tribe and tongue and nation. Not children of Jacob that just belong to Israel, but from every tribe and tongue and nation, making them children of God, not just children of Israel. And that's you. Don't you see you are a child of this promise? How beautiful is that? If you share in the faith of Abraham and Jacob, then all of these promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they belong to you. Now, I'm certain that Jacob had no idea what, that God was doing this great thing. I believe this was far beyond his wildest imagination. But interestingly, Jacob actually prophesies about it himself right here in the text. I don't think he does it intentionally. I don't think he has the slightest clue how significant these actions are. But he gives to us a hint of what God is doing, what God is accomplishing in these promises. It unfolds for us in our text in verses 8 through 14. And I'll just summarize it for you to remind you. Joseph brings his two sons before his father Jacob so that his father might bless these boys. And because his father is old and he cannot see very well, Joseph puts the oldest son Manasseh under the right hand of his father Jacob. And he puts the younger son Ephraim under the left hand of his father Jacob, because the right hand bestows the greater blessing, and the greater blessing belongs to the firstborn. And then the left hand belongs to the younger son, because it's the lesser blessing. 
But do you see what Jacob does? He pulls this last-minute switcheroo. Right before he goes to speak, he swaps his hands so that the younger son gets the greater blessing. And then once again, or once again in Genesis, we find this happening. It's, it's been happening since the very early chapters of Genesis. Again and again, Abel, the secondborn, was chosen over Cain. Remember that? Isaac was chosen over Ishmael, Ishmael who was the firstborn. Esau was older, but Esau was rejected for Jacob. And we might think that switching Manasseh and Ephraim in this blessing is just some devious choice by Jacob, right? Remember Jacob, he's kind of the trickster. He likes to just like trick people. But we can't make that assumption because in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 21 we are told that by faith Jacob blessed these two boys meaning there was something I think beyond even his comprehension that was compelling him to do this thing where he would swap the blessings Jacob's actions here foreshadow God's plan to give Gentiles like you and like me a place of prominence in his family even as the firstborn son, the Jewish people would be passed over. Did you hear what I said? This is foreshadowing that Gentiles like you and me, who are not descendants of Abraham, would be given a place of prominence in God's plan of salvation, and the Jews would ultimately be passed over. Now, not all of them, I'm just saying the nation. And so I think that Jacob knew that God chooses to work through surprising means. God does not follow the conventional methods of man. God does what is right in his own sight. And Jacob, I think, had come to, pro, uh, to understand a profound truth. That God alone can bestow blessing. That blessing belongs to God. And since blessing belongs to God, God has the right to determine how that blessing is given. The blessings of God are His to give as He sees fit. And that's why Romans 9, chapter 15, or sorry, Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Go put that in your proverbial pipe and smoke it. If your soul is courageous enough to meditate on this, it is going to humble you deeply. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But of course, the natural human response to God doing whatever God pleases is the same as Joseph's response to Jacob doing what Jacob does, isn't it? In verse 17, we're told that when Joseph saw his father lay his right hand on the younger son and his left hand on the older son and switched the blessing, the text tells us it displeased him. He was very upset. And Joseph took his father's hand to try and switch it back. No, no, you're doing it wrong, Dad. Not this way. 
And here's a profound illustration for us where we see the natural reaction of man to the will of God. God gives his blessing as he sees fit, and man is displeased. And so man tries to assert his own will over God because man, in his sinful state, finds the will of God displeasing. This is why Jesus needed to teach us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Father. And let's think for a moment how utterly upsetting the way of God is to man. For starters, God does not care one lick about your good works. Doesn't that bother you? You think that you are a good person and God is not impressed. All your trophies of your good deeds that you hoard to show yourself that you're a pretty good person, garbage to God. He does not even consider any of it. It's like filthy rags to him. God does not think that you are a good person. That's offensive to you, isn't it? Because I know you think you are. You can't even believe that I would say it like that. God doesn't think you're a good person. What about sin? Man thinks that he can do whatever he wants, whatever feels good, whatever makes him happy, whatever brings him pleasure. God says no, he will punish all of that. God is going to require a reckoning for every single itty-bitty little sin that you have done. He will call it to account. And God will send every unrepentant sinner to hell, and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. There's no signs that can protest it. There's no appeal process, and that really pisses people off. If we're talking about how the way of God really upsets mankind, what about this one? God hides himself. Doesn't that bother you? God hides himself. Jesus spoke in riddles and parables so that people would be unable to understand. God made a universe that reflects his wisdom and his glory and his beauty. And then he went and hid himself so that nobody could find him unless God first reveals himself to them. A God who cannot be found and only reveals himself to some? Man, that really makes people upset. But we're not even done because if we're going to talk about how God upsets people, then what about his commands? God commands things that people hate. And then he fully expects them to obey those things. With no excuses. And if you refuse to obey, then you're still accountable. Wait, every person, Grady, is going to be held accountable for things that God commands, even if they don't like it, they don't agree with it, they didn't sign up for those terms, simply because God commanded it? Yes, it's true. And it makes people mad. And let's also mention God rules and reigns over every human heart. God rules and reigns over the universe, over all the nations. The nations hate that God rules over them. They even call themselves sovereign nations. 
but they have no sovereignty. They will crumble when God determines that it's time. And though the nations rage and plot in vain to cast off the bonds that God has placed upon them, God just laughs at the impossibility of it. And people hate him all the more because he laughs at the impossibility. But friends, I haven't even got to the most offensive of all. And fortunately, nobody's walked out of the room yet, so I'll just keep going. This is the most offensive of all. That God loves unworthy people like you and me. That's the most offensive. That God gives his grace to you not based on what you do. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. It's not something that you have merited. God's love comes to people not because they are worthy of it or because they found it. And don't you see how incredibly offensive that is? It's like the kid in class who's the total slacker who ends up with the A because the teacher just likes him better. That's not fair. God actually loves his enemies. Doesn't that bother you? And the proof is that he loves you. Remember I said God doesn't think that you're a good person? He loves you. He's offered you his grace. He chose you long before you chose him. He himself pulled the great switcheroo. The one that Jacob is pointing us to. And it's so wonderful we can hardly comprehend it. God put the hand of love that should have been for his son on you, the sinner, the wretched one. And he took the hand of his disfavor that naturally belongs on you because you've earned it, and he put it on his son so that his son would suffer the dishonor that is rightly yours. This is by far the most offensive of all. Because we do think that people should get what they deserve. But God gave what you deserve to his son, Jesus. And in exchange, he gave what you could never deserve. Love and favor an inheritance kept for you, undefiled, imperishable in heaven, the Spirit of God, all of that given to you, though you were never worthy of it. The grace of God is surprising, isn't it? It's wonderful, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's surprising. And I deeply desire that we as a church, in response to this, would be people that live out the surprising grace of God. That as we think about this, what God has done on our behalf, that we would live in response to that grace by being people of grace. That we would give grace to one another, even though we don't deserve. I do not deserve your grace, but I would love for you to give it to me because you have received it so generously. That we would be people who extend grace in Maricopa. Nobody in our city is worthy of it. But let us give it freely because it's been freely given. That we would give grace to those who wound us. Maybe you've been wounded by somebody in our church. I pray that you would be a person who gives them grace because you've received it.
I pray that you would give grace to those who hate you. Grace even to those people who you know will never give it back to you. Because it's been given so freely to you. Man, I so desire that our church would be filled with people of radical grace. Because that's what we've received from God. That grace would flow from us so freely because God has been our shepherd all our life long to this day. Because he's redeemed us from all evil. Let's pray. God, we need more of your grace. We can never live like this apart from your grace. But we thank you that you have allowed the favor that belongs only to your son Jesus to become ours. And we thank you that the reproach that belongs to us, our sin, our condemnation, our failure, our rebellion, you laid all of that upon Jesus. God, we thank you that you have given us such wonderful grace. I pray that it would never cease to surprise us and marvel us and cause us to worship and rejoice. And I pray that in response we would be people of radical grace. Amen.